So today is the first Sunday of Advent, as we said. Advent means coming in Latin. We are expectantly waiting for the coming of Jesus into this world, which we celebrate at Christmas. For this Advent season, we are highlighting five prominent women in Jesus' line. There are plenty more than the five who are named and mostly unnamed in scripture, so I do want to acknowledge those women. This morning, we begin with Tamar. The story of Tamar can be found in Genesis 38. This semester in seminary, I'm taking an Old Testament class, and we have spent a lot of time in Genesis, so it was very helpful to have so many resources uh, at my disposal. It was great. As I have been in the book of Genesis, and in particular studying the end of the book, I have noticed that Tamar's story is put right in the midst of Joseph's story. It felt to me like an interruption in what was taking place. But as we come to find out, it was a very important interruption. So before we get to Tamar, we have to back up to Judah. At the beginning of chapter 38, Judah is leaving his brothers after having been a part of selling their brother Joseph into slavery. The text doesn't say why he left. Was he feeling guilty over what, was just, what he was just a part of? Does he want a new start in life and he needs to be away from his family? We don't know. We just know he left and he stayed with a man from Adullam. While there, he met a Canaanite woman named Shua and married her. They had three sons who were named Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Judah got a wife for Ur named Tamar. Ur was a wicked man, and the Lord put him to death. Judah went to his next son, as is tradition, Onan, and said he needed to fulfill his duty by sleeping with Tamar and producing and raising offspring for his now-deceased brother. Onan knew that any child that he had with Tamar would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, that is how it's written, and probably how he saw it, his brother's wife, he would spill his semen onto the ground so that she could not become pregnant. This was a wicked thing in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord put him to death. So we're talking two husbands now who are incredibly wicked. There is one son left. However, Sheila is young. So Judah tells Tamar to live in her father's house as a widow until Sheila is grown up and can marry. Tamar waits. Time goes by. Sheila has grown up by now. Tamar is still Tamar is still waiting. Genesis 38:12 states after a long time dot 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 so probably years. Basically, Judah is going about his business, living his life. His wife eventually dies. He grieves. He recovers from his grief. And then he heads over to see the men shearing his sheep and hang out with his friend Hira, who he first stayed with when he left his brothers. Tamar has been made aware of the fact that, his father, that her father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep. Tamar decides to take off her widow's clothes, cover herself with a veil, as we see here, and sit down at the entrance to Anam. We have another rendition up there which is on the road to Timnah. All this while, Tamar has been living with the reality that Sheila is grown, and then she has not been given to him as his wife. So she sits disguised at the entrance to this town that her father-in-law is traveling to. Judah sees her, 
thinks she is a prostitute and tells her, come now, let me sleep with you. Again, this is part of the tradition. He's a good man, and, uh, but this is a part of the tradition that you can, for men anyway, if you see a prostitute, go ask them to sleep with you. So the dialogue t- continues like this. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. So Judah sends his friend Hira the Adlamite with a young goat in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he cannot find her. He even asked the man who lived there, the men who lived there, if they knew where the shrine prostitute was. They replied, there hasn't been a shrine prostitute here. Hira went back to Judah and told him that he didn't find her and that the locals said there hadn't been any shrine prostitute there. Okay, I just have to stop for one second in the scripture reading. This is the third time Hira is mentioned in this chapter. I keep wondering what kind of friend is he to Judah? I'm not sure about him at all. <laughs> and truthfully wondered if he, if he ever questioned what Judah was up to. It's just like he stayed with him when he got there. He brought, you know, he had this, you know, got the seal or was trying to get the seal. He just keeps being in these moments. So I just, it just makes you wonder what kind of friend, if he ever questioned like, hey, buddy, is this a good idea or what are you up to? So just a side note there. <laughs> Judah does not want to be the laughing stock. It's like, okay, where's this woman that I just, you know, had relations with? And okay, so don't want anybody to know that. So he says that she can keep the items and doesn't pursue the matter any further. Because, you know, if you don't pursue something, it just goes away. So I guess that was his thinking. Well, after three months go by and Judah is told that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution and pregnant. Judah responds with, bring her out here and have her burned to death. Okay, again, let's have a little, <laughs> a little side thought. This man has dragged his feet regarding Tamar being wedded to Sheila, you know, being his wife. Actually, it still hasn't happened. We're talking years, and we don't know how this woman is at this point either. Remember the text used after a long time, dot, 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 to describe what's going on in Judah's life. Tamar has been waiting for years to be married and bear children. She has obeyed her father-in-law this entire time. Yet when news of her current condition reaches his ears, he quickly responds and is prepared to have this woman burned for her actions, never mind his inaction. We continue to see this played out starting at verse 25 in chapter 38. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I, oh, 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 something's missing here. Basically, she says, uh, the, you know, the father is the one, who, if you re- who do you recognize what I'm sending you? This, this uh, seal and cord and staff, like whoever, whoever this belongs to, that's the father. And Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not sleep with her again. And I have to say, we're gonna, we're gonna dissect this a little bit. I am 
kind of impressed with a man that can be confronted with something, specifically in this situation, and not be like, I have no idea, and I don't know that woman, and you know, the person behind the curtain, ignore them, you know, that he really did take responsibility, and so I am, I'm sort of impressed with him, because up until now, I was wondering, what's up, dude? Okay, this chapter has a lot going on in a span of 30 verses, which of course is really many, many years. And it ends with Tamar giving birth to twins, because the beauty of God, folks, is that he oftentimes will double. He will double his goodness. You know, we have many years, many things that are difficult, but when he blesses, he really blesses. So she gave birth to twins. While reading this, I felt this sense of vindication for a woman who endured a lot. And basically was like, "Uh uh-uh, not today, Judah. That's how I assume that she would say it, or something like that. As I was reading various resources in preparation for today, I read about a woman author who had heard a male pastor preach on the women and the genealogy of Jesus. His assessment of Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, and Ruth, which he blurted out while preaching, was, women corrupted the line of Christ. He never mentioned the male corruptors, because there's a handful, and basically bungled the text and, and in the process insulted probably every woman who was listening. So how do we consider Tamar's role in this story? Let's think about that as I get some water. We know that Judah states that she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her, my, give her to my son, Sheila. He's a man acknowledging her righteousness. Therefore, her actions are, her actions are seen as righteous. It's interesting that Judah is making an admission of the fact that he wouldn't give her to his son. One, common, one commentary stated that after losing two sons, Judah thinks Tamar must be a dangerous woman. What he isn't willing to admit is that his own sons were wicked. So you have to factor that in. His not giving Tamar to his son, Sheila, leaves her in a predicament. She is still engaged, therefore not free to remarry. Yet as her father-in-law admits, he's also not given up his third son. What I pick up from Judah is a lack of care for Tamar, Tamar, and moving away from what the culture and scripture demands when a wife's husband has died, which can be found in Deuteronomy 25. And Judah knows this. He has been here before with his sons. Author and professor Grace Alzababi, I believe is how you say it, writes, after her husband dies, Tamar appears to be a helpless woman, but she knows that she has a right to have a son and does not easily give up on the idea despite the intentional oppression she receives from her father-in-law. Intentional oppression is what Judah displays towards Tamar. The same author who had the misfortune of hearing the sermon given by the male pastor acknowledged the importance of Tamar and other women being named. She stated that in Matthew 1, 3, it is his intention to honor them, not shame them. These women were a part of advancing God's kingdom purposes for the world. Tamar's husband died without a male heir. His line could not be perpetuated. Tamar Tamar acts out of honor. In the ancient Near East, a bride remained the property of her husband's family even after his death. Author Sarah Lindsay writes that in the patriarchal culture of the Old Testament, women had few individual rights and thus needed men to care for them. A father, then a husband, then a son 
Without this progression of men in her life, a woman risked poverty and worse. Without a son, Tamar's future is bleak, and even her present is tenuous, since she depends entirely on the goodwill of her father-in-law, Judah." End quote. And the power dynamic is obvious and real. Judah also has the power of life and death as it pertains to Tamar. Yes, Tamar becomes subversive in her role, taking a risk to bring about justice for herself. She is both brave and determined. Lindsay also writes, Tamar is a woman who rights the wrong done to her, who stands up for justice when no one else will. In so doing, she humbles the powerful Judah and earns his respect. She is one of the least of these, living on the margins of her household as a widow in her father-in-law's house. But scripture shows us through the birth of her sons and through her inclusion in both Genesis and Matthew that God was on her side, on the side of the weak and the powerless. I see three important themes coming from Tamar's story. First, God uses unexpected people oftentimes in unexpected ways to advance his kingdom purposes, which I'm sure is hard for us to hear given how this, you know, how this advanced, but this is, this is sometimes how it goes, folks. This is something that we read over and over again in scripture. In this season of Advent, that seems to be much of the theme. The, woman who we, the women who we will discuss in the weeks to come are perhaps not women who we would immediately put in the genealogy of Jesus, whether it is due to what they did or their commonness or that they are women, for some folks that think like that, there is an unexpectedness to them being a part of Jesus' story. The second theme I see emerging from Tamar's story is that God is a God of justice. He will right the wrongs done by the powerful to the weak, and he does not turn a blind eye to them. Throughout scripture, we witness this happening, from Hagar to Tamar to widows of the early church. God has not forgotten them and insists upon just actions being done. The last theme emerging from the story of Tamar is that her story has a practical application even now. Society, at least in the US, is not set up as it was in her day, we know that. However, some of the same realities exist. Those who are marginalized are often vulnerable to the will and whim of those who are more powerful. All types of injustice still exist today. When thinking of this, I do think of Tamar and the risk she took to bring about justice. It was a huge risk. Who knows what could have happened as she was sitting at that gate or how Judah could have responded. Are we willing to risk our lives for justice if it comes to that? She kept justice as the main view. Does it matter that much to us? Tamar could have been tempted to feel sorry for herself, and maybe she did at times, but she allowed her desire for what was hers, for justice, to move her into action. Again, what are we willing to do to bring about justice as it pertains to others? It's kind of funny because we are, and we'll be talking about the women in the genealogy of Jesus. That part's not funny. But a modern day or somewhat modern day story about a man, a white man in particular, kept coming to mind as I worked on this. So I want to tell his story. Has anyone heard of the name James Joseph Reeb? We can get a picture of him up, the first picture. Has anybody heard of him? Okay, you've heard of him? You've heard of him? Carl knows. Carl knows. <laughs> Okay, well, he was an American Unitarian Universalist, 
uh, minister and an activist during the civil rights movement. He came to Selma in 1965 to participate in the Selma to Montgomery marches. So a married man, father of four, pastor and activist, and only 38 years old, made a choice that was a risk, even for a white person, to come to march for the voting rights of black people. This is amazing for this time period. Well, and this time period. <laughs> When he was in Alabama, he went out to eat in an integrated restaurant with three other Unitarian ministers. Afterwards, they were attacked by white men with clubs because of their support of African-American rights. His injuries were severe. Sorry, one more drink. <laughs> the black hospital didn't have the facilities to treat him, and they would have, and the white hospital refused. Those with him did eventually get Pastor Reeb to a hospital in Birmingham that treated him. However, his condition deteriorated severely. You can put up the other picture. The doctors performed brain surgery on him, but he went into a coma and died two days later from his injuries. So, yeah, that's in Birmingham. So why am I telling you a depressing story about a white minister and activist? Because to get to justice, we have to be willing to risk something, sometimes our very lives. James Reeb was an unexpected person in this story. He was white, he had a family at home. You might say as a white man, especially for that time period, it wasn't even his problem. Because that was a dangerous problem to have to be a part of this movement. Plenty of white pastors were condemning marches and protests left and right. They were telling Dr. King, Oh, let's wait. How about you wait? <laughs> there were plenty of white allies that said, nope, we're joining in, and he was one of them. Prod declaring these actions, these are some of the same pastors, Prod declaring these actions wrong or unlawful or unshameful or shameful or even unbiblical. He could have aligned himself with them, and many people would have just been fine with that, but he wouldn't have been fine with that. His wife, who was at home with those four kids who let him go, wouldn't have been fine with that. Other pastors with the same convictions wouldn't have been fine with that. I would say his actions were also righteous. God, in his goodness, used Tamar and continues to use many unexpected people to bring about the work of his kingdom, like James Reed. And hopefully, like all of us, that's my message. <laughs>